This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Joining me today to share the stories behind his 10 best spiritual books is David Farrell, who's a trained plant spirit healer, geomancer, crystal healer, and a U Mysteries initiate. David's Celtic roots form a strong part of his healing and shamanic practices, and he's also been initiated into a long lineage of and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but uh, I'm sure David will correct me if it's wrong. Kichwa Tabaqueros? Is that correct? Uh, Kichwa Tabaqueros, see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. From the Ecuadorian Amazon rainforest. And David also co founded the groundbreaking events Gateways of the Mind, Plant Consciousness, and the Shamanic Lands. And he is a lead presenter and interviewer at the online TV platform, Wisdom Hub TV. David Farrell, welcome. Hi, Sandy. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I'm super excited to talk about uh, my favorite spiritual books today. Yes, and, uh, and everything else that you're doing, um, which I'm sure everyone will be really interested to hear about. So you are an avid reader of books, often reading my goodness, you know, an entire book a day between the ages of eight and 12, which is quite a lot. And you've said that there were always two major themes running through what you enjoyed. Tell us about those. Yeah, so uh, from an early age, um, I was brought up in a household with, with parents who were teachers and somewhat academics. And so there was always a lot of books around. And uh, as a kid, I enjoyed reading uh, lots of books. Uh, I think they fueled my excitable imagination and so um you know as a youngster i plowed through all of the traditional books enid blight and famous five and secret seven and then books like susan cooper's the dark is rising series and i read a lot of um rosemary sutcliffe's historical books to do with beowulf and the eagle of the ninth and yeah i was always really interested in history and so i think that history and adventure um you know particularly sort of even at an early age sort of the hero's journey adventures always appealed to me um, and yeah, um, I, you know, that's, that's where my initial reading, um, took me as a, as a kid, I guess. Yeah. Well, seeing, uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe's name there really kind of jolted me because I'd completely forgotten about all of her books. And, uh, of course, anyone who's British will, will recognize the authors that you've talked about, maybe other countries, you know, people might not the Enid Blyton stories. Um, they were staples of our childhood. 
They were, yeah, you know, and um, I love, I, I picked out uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe's books again recently, actually, while I was tidying up my book collection, and I kind of flicked through them. I forgot how good they were as kids. I mean, you know, yeah. for four kids, lots of historical accounts, and, and she, yeah, she, she wrote really, really beautiful books for, yeah, youngsters, I guess, to, to understand more about the history of our lands, and uh, for me, that definitely struck a chord. Yeah. So how difficult was it for you to whittle your list down? To just take <laughs> uh, well you know I, I scanned through what everybody else had done before and what then I was just like surely it's not going to be that difficult and I <laughs> think I whittled it down pretty quickly to 25 30 books and then I was just like oh man it is it is more difficult than I thought um, but what I tried to do was was pick out books that really um, either had a profound effect on me or had a profound effect on my life and you know in the way that I've listed them is kind of the order that I read them so it's also a little bit of my journey I guess through the books that I've read and, and books have always been a big part of my journey and still to this day you know my books are kind of like my personal internet if I need to find something out then you know I go to the bookshelf and pick up a book that feels right and often just open it randomly and quite often the information that I need about something will be there you know within that within that chapter or that paragraph or something so uh, I, I love having a big collection of books um, I've, yeah um, so the uh, challenge hopefully. is when you yeah. move around a lot <laughs> you know the books weigh so much I mean I've done this I've had to let books go over the years simply because I just can't keep lugging them everywhere with me and um, that's like giving away one of the big kids isn't it yeah um, yeah books and I also had quite a large record collection too I was a DJ for many years and, and books and records are not necessarily something that um, your house removal guy is going to thank you for <laughs> shifting up and down steps because they're kind of heavy um, mm. but books are precious I still really believe that you know even in in the modern era when we can read so much stuff on our mobile phones and our laptops and basically digital screens, I, I really have, have not wanted to engage with that at all. I've always preferred to pick up a book. Uh, mm. You know, you can carry it with you on, on, on public transport. You can sit and read. You can put your headphones on. You know, I mean, I used to often read a lot of books actually commuting when I lived in London in, in my 20s. Um, you know, sometimes you'd have an hour or more journey in, into work and home from work. And that's perfect reading time, you know, um, mm. particularly on the hot crowded sweaty undergrounds of the past uh you just yeah. want to get into your own space and just kind of use that time you know um yeah just to to read uh that was probably when i read a lot of books actually was commuting to work in london mm. and and you're right i mean you know reading is a very tactile thing as well as a visual thing and cracking open a book you know and getting yourself all settled because it's a new one i mean it's not the same as cracking open a kindle is it no, it's not. And I think that that's, you know, that's the aspect of books is not just necessarily the words in the book. It's the cover. It's the artwork. It's holding it in your hand. And yeah, Kindle's for me anyway, just not the same. No, no. So the first book, and you said that these are in the order that you read them. Um, I'm going to introduce it by saying the very famous, very famous quote, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. <laughs> one ring to bring them all and in the darkness find them everybody knows what that is lord of the rings by jrr token yeah so i mean i wasn't sure whether i'd be allowed to include this because it's a novel but for me um you know tolkien tolkien i think really was a channel in, in many ways and and lord of the rings and to some extent the hobbit but especially Lord of the Rings I mean it's the ultimate hero's journey you know there's so much profundity in Lord of the Rings you know even just 
simple things like it's the hobbits that you know it's the the um the pure beings the you know the so-called simple country folk the hobbits that end up with the journey of taking this powerful ring that nobody else can bear you know because they're not pure enough you know that the men can't handle it the elves don't want to handle it but somehow it's the the very kind of earthy hobbits um that end up taking the the very perilous journey i think there's a a a clip where sam gamji says something like you know the very place that we don't want to go mordor is the very place that we're headed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's just like there's so yeah. many quotes in there which i feel like could be really relevant to this moment in time that we're all in right now it feels as if mordor is here somewhere on the planet right now um, yeah and i think you're right i think it was you know a work such as this it has to be channeled it has to be Did, yeah, have you I mean, seen the movie about him where they're basically um saying it was a lot of it was inspired by his experiences in wartime yeah, I mean, we actually used to live in a part of Wales um, near Crickowell where Tolkien spent quite a large part of his time while he was writing Lord of the Rings, actually. And there were places around there where he used some of the names of local villages and towns and he adapted them slightly for the book. But, I mean, Wales really, in many ways, you know, the Mabinogi and the mythology of Wales and, and to a large extent the mythology of the Celtic and uh, Norse worlds really, I think, informed a lot of what Tolkien wrote about. But... I also believe that he was really quite deeply connected into the other world of our land. And maybe he even knew certain medicines, certain plants or fungi that you can find growing, especially in Wales, um, that really connect you into those worlds. And um, T- Tolkien was a super interesting character. And I, and I like the bio, uh, the biopic um, movie they did with him recently that was kind of interesting, too. But a lot of people have commented that they think or, you know, that Tolkien was inspired by the Great War and you know, the, the rise of the machine is really kind of reflected in what happens with Sauron and the orcs and, you know, and then the Ents have to come and it, the filth gets washed away. And there's so many parallels. I really think that um, the Tolkien was writing about something that was going to happen, but something that had also happened in the ancient past. And I, I, I love Lord of the Rings because it blurs really what is mythological past possibilities into future timelines and narratives almost seamlessly. And, you know, Jackson, Peter Jackson, who made the movies, took a lot of criticism, particularly from Tolkien's family and from his son, Christopher Tolkien. I think there wasn't an awful lot of love lost over the final um, versions of the movies. But for me, the films are amazing. I, I don't know how many times I've watched those trilogies, but if I need some sort of spiritual inspiration on the path, if I need to summon that warrior spirit for whatever reason, I often watch the, um, the second or third movies. Um, and... <laughs> For many years, I didn't realize that there were extended versions that made, um, particularly the first movie, extended from three hours to four hours. And then I discovered there was all of these director's cuts, which basically amounted to another three hours of Tolkien movie footage. I, I was so happy. <laughs> so sat down and watched it. And I think in total, must have, geez, must have been about 11 or 12 hours of viewing or something. <laughs> how, how if you haven't you seen the director's cuts of the movie. Sorry, Sandy, say again. How old were you? How old were you when you read it? Lord of the Rings. Um, the first time I read it, I think I must have been about nine or ten years old. Wow. And, and you know, how did you feel? I mean, that's such a, you know, even for someone who likes fantasy books or whatever, I mean, that had to have been a, a blow-your-mind experience. It was. I mean, you know, um, I think for anybody reading Lord of the Rings for the first time is probably going to have that in, uh, a kind of effect on you. And certainly at that age, uh, um, you know, just before I was kind of going to say, 
Um, I think I read it in the last year I was at primary school. And it, yeah, for for a 10 or 11 year old, it was it was kind of a heavy read. It's a big book. Um, but, um, you know, the thing that I remember about it actually was that there are passages in the book that are a little less kind of easy to read. They're actually the bits that mostly were left out of the movies, particularly the stuff around Tom Bombadil. There's lots of verse and prose and poetry, which as a 10 year old wasn't quite as exciting as the big orc battles and the balrogs in the Mines of Moria, um, which, I, you know, uh, the bit that really stands out for me reading what was the, the second book, The Two Towers, it's really probably my the descent into the darkness of the mines of Moria with the fellowship and, and the demise of Gandalf is harrowing. It's, it's a harrowing sequence in the book, but you know, Gandalf returns and he's Gandalf the white and he has a vague memory of being Gandalf the gray. That's also a beautiful moment, you know, when they're in the forest and they think that they're about to confront Sauron and that's actually Gandalf returning basically from the other side. You know, he, he sort of, when he falls into the depths with the Balrog, he essentially dies. He crosses and he comes back yes. as a more ascended version of himself. And, um, you know, and the other favourite scene I love from that movie is, um, or from the book really, is, is the, the Battle of Helm's Deep. And, you know, there's the big battle in five days. And then Gandalf says, on the fifth morning, look to the east. And, you know, sure enough, you know, at the moment as they're about to ride out for death or glory, I think there's just a handful. There's Aragorn and there's the king, uh, the riders of Rohan, and they ride out. And then Gandalf appears with his sword, you know, as the sun rises on the east and they sweep down the hill. And it's just like, wow, that's, for me, one of my all-time favorite movie scenes because it just speaks to me of so many things and and, and right now you know it's we kind of need Gandalf leading the charge with his with his big staff of light you know and the forces of light riding behind him <laughs> yeah for sure so the second the second book um the teachings of Don Juan a yaki way of knowledge by Carlos Castaneda yeah well, you know, as I wrote in the show notes, I mean, I first encountered this book um, a couple of years after Lord of the Rings. Um, I was probably, I think, 13 or 14 at secondary school. And that's about the age when you and your mates start passing around probably material that's perhaps a little bit beyond your age range. <laughs> reading. I remember that a lot of my friends were passing around Jilly Cooper at that time, too, because they found that kind of super interesting as a 13 and 14 year old. But, um, but Jilly didn't make it into my, my top 10 books this time around. No. But, um, but uh, Don Juan did. And yeah, I mean, I remember reading that book. And in fact, all of my friends, we all read it and we were completely blown away as, you know, the idea of finding peyote or jimson weed or, or you know, uh, shamans down in West Cornwall in the early 90s was, you know, might as well be on the moon, really. <laughs> but um, I didn't really understand much of the book, if I'm honest. It seemed, all seemed pretty wild. I had the very strong impression that peyote as a plant was something that was incredibly strong <laughs> and probably not to be trifled with. And, you know, but I, I came back to the books many years later and I pretty much read all of them. Uh, they're not all as good as the teachings of Don Juan, but the journey to Ixlan and the art of dreaming are also both very good. And sure, so, um, Carlos Castaneda took uh, a flack uh, over the years for whether the stories were true, whether he'd made them up, whether Don Juan really existed. For me, in the end, it doesn't really matter because what he has put in those books, he may have pulled it from various sources, from Tibetan Buddhism. You can definitely see that in places and maybe from traditional um, curanderismo in Mexico and traditional uh, plant work with peyote. In the end, I don't think it matters. What he, he created was a story that sold millions of books and inspired millions of people, um, yes. you know, and whatever his legacy is, and, and there are some strange kind of stories about a lot of what happened to his demise and the end of it all, but... For, for me, that book really, I guess, was the first one that introduced me to plant medicine. And even if it went way over my head, uh, it definitely stuck with me. And um, 
you know, now I find myself living in the land of peyote. Um, and there are not so many, you know, it's not so difficult to find Don Juan lookalikes in Mexico, you know, um, they seem to be on every, on every street corner, really, uh, in some ways. Um, but so, yeah, beautiful journey. And I kind of included it because of its relevance to where I am now and the fact that I do work with that plant. Um, it's not my main um, plant that I work with, but it's definitely one that I've sat in ceremony with and the grandfather is the grandfather I kind of feel in many ways he is one of the protective spirits of these lands mm. yeah and certainly uh, more abundant than Cornwall <laughs> yeah you don't well I mean actually Cornwall's pretty uh, kind of tropical so you do get palm trees and stuff but a great deal of peyote cacti growing out on the, 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 <laughs> the moors of West Penwith uh, at least if you do I never saw them as a kid um, we do have other mm. medicine that grows out there though <laughs> such mm -hmm. as well, you know, we have a lot of interesting fungi that grows down there, uh, for sure. Yes. Uh, um, the Celtic lands are, are full of uh, if you know where to look. Uh, so the plant medicine was there, and I think maybe, if anything, the teachings of Don Juan probably inspired many of my classmates to go out looking in the fields, in the hills around St. Ives, looking for other things that might uh, have some sort of effect on them, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So book number three, this is the first time, and I'm really surprised, but it's the first time this book has shown up. Uh, Fingerprints oh, yeah. of the Gods, The Evidence of Earth's Lost Civilizations by Graham Hancock, published in 1995. Wow. Yeah, I mean, f uh, there are many great books in this list, but in, in many ways, I think that this book kind of represented a bridge for me into um, something that kind of, I mean, I was always interested in history, but I never really necessarily believed all of what I was taught at school or the, you know, the historical narratives. There was always a lot of stuff that didn't really add up for me. And, you know, at the time that Hancock wrote that book, there really wasn't material out there that was sort of what would now be considered as the revisionist alternative history or the ancient aliens history as it sort of become. So, um, and, you know, there was, also books by Robert Boval and a few others, but yeah. really uh, Gods was the first book that brought all of the ideas from all over the world about like, who built the pyramids, how do they do all of this, and, you know, sure, Eric von Daniken did stuff in the 70s, so it's not, it wasn't completely new territory, but I think that this book in particular really um, brought together lots of interesting ideas, and certainly as a, I, I guess I must have been about 24 when I read that book, in the mid-90s, um, uh, no, sorry, uh, I think I read it, sorry, in the late 90s. I was probably around my mid-20s by that point. But, um, yeah, I kind of think that it, it inspired everything that has come since, really. You, you look now in the, the spiritual book uh, space, and there are so many books that have kind of followed on, really, and developed various aspects of Graham's work. I'm a big fan of Freddie Silver's books, too, which is in a similar track, which I'll talk about uh, more towards the end. But um, it, there was a great TV series that came out that time called Heaven's Mirror, which was really a sort of a BBC adaptation of um, Graham's book, Fingerprints of the Gods. So it kind of, you know, the visuals of Angkor Wat and um, the big sites in Central and South America. And of course, the, you know, the, um, the, the pyramids of Giza in Egypt, um, you know, as, 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 as a young man in, in Cornwall, it all seemed very, very exciting and, and very much like Indiana Jones, to be honest, yes. uh, which also yeah. appealed sense of adventure and but also this idea that perhaps there was a large part of human history that we shouldn't just take as gospel and accepted by whoever given it to us but perhaps we should start questioning why certain things didn't add up why traditional timelines that have been presented to us by ancient Egyptologists didn't really make sense and you know I kind of think that um 
that we're in, we're in a time when we're having to radically reevaluate where humans came from, uh, how we were created, uh, what our genetic, uh, our hidden genetic uh, makeup is. And, you know, I think that really Graham did a lot of good work um, in the last 20 years to bring that into the public awareness and make many of us, particularly my generation, I think, question um, what humans are doing here on this planet and how we got here. And, and you know, yeah. who were our ancient, ancient ancestors who built these incredible uh, structures like the pyramids in Giza and, you know, places in, in Peru like Saxiwaman where they have the blocks that, you know, you can't put a, a piece of paper yeah. between you know, it's uh, so that really that book started what has been a lifelong um, quest to to learn about this. And, and, and really, um, even though I wasn't into plant medicine per se at that point, a lot of what I learned during that time, a lot of what I've gone on to study since I've, I've worked with plant medicine to to question and ask, hey, you know, uh, how much of this is true? Who really built the pyramids? And so that that book really fueled the beginning of what is to this day still an ongoing uh, quest for me to find out more about the origins of humans and, you know, being so scorpionic we are, the Zodiac's researchers, and, and we don't tend to rest until we find the truth. So yeah. uh, it's, it's a big rabbit hole to dive into, but heck, you know, we've got a lot of time, so why not? Well, and it's better than some rabbit holes. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So book number four um, is Atlantis Rising, The Struggle of Darkness and Light by Patricia Corey, and that's book two of the Syrian Revelations trilogy. So, yeah, this was a kind of an interesting book because um, this came to me while I was living in Dubai, um, maybe two or three years after I'd read Hancock's book. And, you know, at that point, Dubai wasn't really the city that it is today. It was still developing. It was still quite small. Um, and finding any kind of spiritual books really was quite tricky. And we only had, I think, two bookshops at that time. And, you know, there was still a fair amount of censorship with, with a lot of the literature then. And, you know, unless it was sort of in harmony with the religion of the country, a lot of sort of spiritual books weren't really allowed to be sold. And then suddenly something changed a few years into our time there. And suddenly we had a brand new bookshop that was huge called Kino Kunia. And they had a really decent spiritual uh, selection. It's also where I picked up a lot of Zachariah Sitchin's books um, too, which I kind of mentioned in my list. But the, the book by Patricia kind of came at a moment when, you know, off the back of reading Hancock and a whole number of other things um, had really sparked my interest in, in two things, particularly the Anunnaki's, um, the, the race of extraterrestrials or planet beings known as the Anunnaki. And um, that was sort of fueled by my interest in ancient history, particularly Egyptian and Sumerian. And the book itself draws together many different uh, ideas and I guess in many ways now, when I look back on it, it's kind of an overview to many ideas and introduce things like HARP, for example, the so-called uh, geo weathering, um, manipulating uh, technology. And, you know, so it was kind of an eye opener to me really into, I guess, a lot of what perhaps now has unfolded over the last 10 years in our world. And But I, I think most importantly, that book uh, took uh, myself and my then wife, Emma, to um, to Egypt back in 2010. And that um, was a really mind-blowing experience. There was about 60 of us. Um, the, the trip was led by Patricia. And we were there for the spring equinox of 2010. whole group of light workers and spiritual people. And um, i got to be honest, at that point, I wasn't one of those people. Um, I really didn't think that I had a sensitive uh, cell in my body. Um, didn't really consider myself to be spiritual. was super interested in history. And, you know, really, I think, came into my spiritual 
um, journey through that book, The Trip, and the merging of, of an interest for me, which was a sort of like, you know, um, the ancient history of Cubans, but also it really lifted something in me. Um, we, we spent the spring equinox of, of March 2010 in the King's Chamber. We had private access right till six in the morning, which was incredible, really. And we had the whole place to ourselves, and we spent maybe two or three hours in the King's Chamber toning, and uh, we all got to spend some time in the sarcophagus there. And, I mean, it was mind-blowing, man, for someone like, like me. It just kind of, I don't I think the top of my head got blown off. Um, I also did a past life regression uh, for the first time on that uh, trip or whilst we were going on a cruise down the Nile. And that completely blew my mind. It was all off planet, all to do with star origins and stuff that I'd never considered before. I mean, it completely knocked me sideways for a few days. And then we went to the temple with Sekhmet, with the statue of Sekhmet, and, and the many people on the trip had very, very powerful experiences there. Um, me, not so much, but uh, but Emma did. And, you know, um, that was really the beginning of what kind of went underground for a few years on my journey, but has been a very, very big part of the last six or seven years, which was, was karma from Egypt. I mean, for those of your listeners who've been to Egypt, I've been personally, I've only been to a handful of other places in the world where the overriding energy was so strong ridiculously strong even you know uh, for me back in those times when I didn't really understand what was going on um, the energy was off the charts I, I think I didn't sleep for three days it, it, the energy was so strong that I wasn't able to sleep and you know we had a great group of people we made many friends and it was really um, and I look back on it as a turning point and when I look back now and I see the alignments and I see how those alignments went back again at this time I'm just like wow that really was the other cycle that has now come to an end and, and a new cycle is beginning and so I have to thank Patricia for that trip and, and for inspiring through that book to get us to go to Egypt it was somewhere that we'd always wanted to go and it was just at a point when we're leaving the Middle East and uh, then moving to India and so it was kind of a transition between what had been a corporate life into what was all kind of um, journey and, and yeah, that, uh, yeah, that trip to Egypt and that book really I think was the catalyst for everything that has happened since yeah quintessential life changer mm. well your next book provides convincing evidence that angels demons and fallen angels were flesh and blood members of a giant race predating humanity spoken of in the bible as the nephilim the book is mm -hmm. from the ashes of angels the forbidden legacy of a fallen race by andrew collins and that was published 1996 Yeah, so again, uh, somewhere I think between um, the Hancock and, and um, Corey books uh, in, in a bookshop in somewhere in London, and I actually got to see Andrew quite time. Very interesting. The book itself, the first time I read it was I found it going. It's one of those books where I ended up reading the same page two or three times, understanding it. Uh, I then came back to the book probably maybe two or three years ago and read it, and it made so much more sense. So it's kind of like you know, it, it gave me a lot of information. I mean, the book is really exploring from an academic perspective the evidence for angels, and if so, uh, who or what are they? And so, of course, it goes into many things like the Nephilim and the Watchers, which then starts to get across to a lot of the Sumerian work, uh, initially by Sitchin, but really Anton Parks's book, which I'll talk about at the end, which I've only just recently read. 
I started to see the correlations, you know, between what the Sumerian scriptures were talking about in terms of the watchers, the Agigi, the Elohim. Uh, and that, that book really sort of um, resonated for me in a way that I couldn't understand at the time. Um, subsequently, uh, you know, in the shamanic work and healing work that I do, I work a lot with the angelic realms. And so some part of me, I think, was always uh, in, in awareness of that but not necessarily understanding it. And the same with the Anunnaki's. Uh, that was always an interest that from the moment I heard the, the name of those beings, I was, I was captivated, you know, and it's become those two threads have been a big part of my shamanic spiritual journey. The beings uh, are quite, and, and actually the angelic beings and the Anunnaki beings from what I've come to understand are very connected. Um, you know, the way I understand it now is that the archangels are really the ascended versions of the Anunnaki beings who came here couple of hundred years ago and you know this is what we uh, read about in the cuneiform scriptures that have been found on mass in you know in in sumeria what is now iraq and iran and that part of the middle east and sitchin um zachariah sitchin wrote a whole number of books the earth chronicles i think they're called and talks about the 12th planet and i think those were the books that i read first about these beings and uh, they resonated although i didn't necessarily concur with all of what he wrote and but it inspired me enough to, to, to start researching more, like, you know, what is the connection between the Anunnaki? What is the connection with the angelic beings? Who were the Nephilim? You know, what is the Bible talking about? The Bible is a super interesting book, actually, and could have probably made it into this list, although I have to confess I've not read it cover to cover. But I particularly find the Old Testament to be very interesting because it's got fragments of the Great Flood and it's got fragments of supposedly mythological beings. But the more research that I've done and the more that I've encountered these beings in, in the astral planes and the higher realms through working with plant medicine, the more I realize that really the Bible is just recounting fragments of human history. And, you know, we often, I think, perhaps as modern humans, make the mistake of thinking that the, the energetics and dynamics of the past of maybe a few thousand years ago or ten thousands of years ago, is the same as what it is now. And, you know, uh, another book that could have made it into this list was Greg Braden's Cycles of Time, which I found really interesting. And, you know, of course, the 12 conjunctions and even the conjunctions we've had over the last few years speak of really the end of an epoch, the end of an era. I would say it could be the Kali Yuga. You know, there's a lot of variations on the timelines and the cycles, the mind, long count, etc., etc. But what I've come to understand is that the universe or this part of the universe goes through cycles of energetic how to say dynamics and we've been living through really two and a half thousand years of very very dead energy very very you know in i believe that our ancestors lived in a time frame where the energy was different maybe the gravitational forces were different i believe that humans were bigger we found evidence of giant mushrooms fossilized giant trees fossilized so you know that speaks perhaps of a different field that allowed much bigger animals like the dinosaurs you know but also, you know, I feel that the that time frame is, is similar to the one we're about to move back into. And so I often, you know, say that, you know, we, we are the ancestors that we've been waiting for. We are the reincarnation sisters who lived in some form, maybe not in the physical form, maybe slightly more etheric, who knows. But when I think about the quality, quantum work that I'm engaged in now and what I've been a lot recently about we start to become a hundred percent responsible for our health and deciding whether we allow ourselves to become sick and if we don't then you know what happens when we don't get sick well probably we live longer 
you know, and when you go into the history of the ancient king lists of Ireland and Sumeria and many places over the world, you see that supposedly our ancient ancestors lived for hundreds of years and ruled as kings for hundreds of years. And mm. modern scientists will say that's not possible. Humans can only live maximum 100, 110 years. But that's in the modern context. But I think probably, you know, maybe 10,000 years ago, maybe between five to 10,000 years ago, the ancient ancestors that are written about in our ancient texts, particularly the, the, the Book of Invasions are really interesting. There's some very, very interesting accounts in the Mabinogi and even just within the Celtic literature. But you can pretty much find similar stories all over the world. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's interesting for us to be flexible in our mind space and perhaps assume that we don't know everything that happened in the past and that perhaps the past isn't the same as the present and things were different then. Maybe we had better technology. Maybe we've, maybe we've descended like the fallen angels into, yeah. into whatever the last two and a half thousand years has been. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, we all decided to come and participate in the experiment of duality. You know, and as the Buddhists would say, every human rebirth is a precious human rebirth because there are many, many countless beings who would love to come and experience what it is to be human. And we're the lucky ones. We, we got to sign up for the greatest psychedelic experience uh, that is out there in the universe, otherwise known as the human experience here on Earth. And, you know, I think that we're, we're moving into a time when we can start to look to the past, not to the ar archaic antique past, but to the perhaps more ecologically uh, and techn technologically advanced past where our ancestors maybe were working with different energies and technologies yeah. that allowed them to build the pyramids and all of these other amazing things. So that's where I think it's really interesting to merge spirituality and history. And we can start to particularly find out some of these things when we work with plant medicine and, and we encounter some of these beings, particularly the angelic beings or some of the, uh, the God beings. Wow. <clears throat> mm. I mean, there have been so many, um, there's so much evidence out there. There's been so many um, things that have been found, you know, batteries that date back thousands of years, you know, long before. I mean, there's too much evidence, I think, you know, to ignore. Totally. And, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's Anthony Cremo who's, who's written a book about forbidden archaeology, the archaeology that the, yes. uh, the mainstream doesn't want to acknowledge because they, they find things like batteries and all kinds of weird equipment in, in sediment layers that actually before, before at the time of human uh, civilization. So, you know, mm. go figure, how did it get there? You know, and yeah. I have another interesting uh, theory, which is that the past is, is an active, um, it's, it's active concurrently with the present. So I often wonder, are we actually creating the past the more that we look into the past? Who knows? That's, a bit of a psychedelic idea, but I think it's super interesting because the, the, yeah. the more we find it, the more we find about ourselves. So um, was it there before or did we create it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't cracked time yet, you know. We think we have, but we haven't. No. I mean, you know, uh, one of my favorite plants is dandelion, of course, I often talk about who, who is really a master of um, moment and showing us that the only thing that truly exists is the present. Nothing else is an aspect of that, including the past. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's interesting to, to think about the past and the present in a very fluid way, because we're living in a time when a lot of people would say perhaps that the timelines are getting played around with. And that that's been some of the energies have been so over the last 12 months is that there was a lot of fiddling going on 
And, you know, for those of your listeners who do similar work to myself, they include soul retrieves. We go into the past using sympathetic magic to retrieve soul fragments, to bring them back into the present moment, to be reintegrated. So that's timeline magic. So when you understand that, you have to be super responsible about what you're doing because, you know, if you misuse that, the ramifications can be quite big, you know. So if we know as healers how to do healing work in the past, then I'm sure there are other beings out there who also know how to manipulate the past too for their own endeavors. And I think we're at a time when that has happened, that everything is kind of coming to the event horizon of this epoch. And, you know, we will see great change, I think, in the next few years. For sure, and all the astrology points to that as well, yeah. And the Mayan cosmology. So Mm -hmm. book number six, you say that this book and the subsequent relationship have been the cornerstone of the plant, shaman and healer you are today. And the book is Plant Spirit Healing by Pam Montgomery. Yeah, you know, so uh, on the off chance that beloved teacher Pam Montgomery gets to see this year and I'm going to send it to you so I hope she does um, and to, to thank Pam for, for all that she taught me over the five years that I was her student and, and that myself and Emma hosted her in Britain many many plant diet retreats and teaching us to be plant spirit healers and um, yeah I mean there's a lot to say around this book so you know I got to find out about this book um, shortly after I had my first experience with ayahuasca And at that time, I'd been kind of mulling over an idea to run a big event around sustainability and plants and nature. But it hadn't quite formulated fully at that point. And um, my first experience with ayahuasca, she spoke to me very clearly and and said, hey, that that event that you're thinking about, uh, it needs to be about the intelligence of plants. Uh, and how we can communicate with them. I was like, that's really interesting. This plant's telling me a bit, I should organize an event about how to communicate with plants while I'm communicating with a plant. Uh, so maybe there's something in this. <laughs> so that really then inspired what became the event that is plant, was plant consciousness. And in the, um, in, the, in the preparation for that first event, I did a lot of research and, and reached out to many people. And, you know, um, I, I used, uh, I then went back to Italy, actually, where I was studying at the time um, as a Buddhist student. And I had a practice then of doing nettle meditations uh, in the morning. Um, and, and, of course, nettle is very famously connected to the uh, Tibetan um, ascended master, Milarepa, who spent 20 years meditating in a cave uh, and only drinking nettle juice, uh, so much so that his skin, his skin went green and his hair went green. And, I always uh, always identified very strongly with Miller Reaper because he didn't really fit the, the Buddhist trajectory. He was a sorcerer who came good and, uh, um, you know, for him maybe it might work for me. Um, so I used to have a practice of drinking nettle tea and it was during one of those meditations, short ayahuasca ceremony, that the nettle was just like, hey, that event that you're thinking about organizing now, it needs to be called plant consciousness. And it was one of those moments where it was just like, oh, I feel that. But I didn't. And, you know, um, I have to thank both Nettle and Ayahuasca for really giving me and Emma the, the sort of the foundation to create plant consciousness, which became um, Europe's biggest event about plant intelligence for the five years that we ran it. And, you know, and it stopped just before all of this recent global situation arose. So we, we kind of had a good five years with that. But when I did the research uh, into plant consciousness as an idea or even as a as a concept, Pam's book came up. And so I immediately ordered a copy, read it cover to cover, I think probably in about three or four days, was absolutely captivated by what it talked about. But also, um, I then reached out to Pam 
and asked her if she'd like to come and be a part of our event. And she said yes. And, and she spoke at the first um, plant consciousness we ran and we, uh, we ran a plant spirit healing workshop with her. And that was it. That was the beginning of the journey. And, um, you know, uh, it's the, the work with the plant spirits that I learned with Pam, but also with Carol Guy, whose, whose book Sacred Plant Initiations was also on the list to, to make it in. I studied with both of those wonderful teachers at the same time. And um, just really, you know, if I think back at that time, I think I had the sensitivity of a piece of concrete. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't sure whether I'd ever be able to communicate with plants or anything. I, you know, I didn't realize at that point that I was actually empathic. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like the first year or so with that was really a lot of me getting out of my head, actually, and getting more into my heart and starting to feel, uh, after many years of perhaps being shut down at the heart chakra level, really starting to feel again through my energy field and starting to remember what it was like to be empathic. I think as a youngster, it had been quite traumatic for me and I'd kind of shut a lot of that down and had gone in a very sort of materialistic, you know, approach corporate um was very his football and his beer at that time and you know but the move into the world of plants really started to solve and, and yeah so that book i i guess pivotal ones because it introduced me to pan and to the idea of plant consciousness in general and that really has fueled pretty much everything that's happened in my life since mm. Reading about the book, I saw some notes that said that um, it explores the scientific basis underlying the practices of indigenous healers and shamans. It reveals that partnering with plants is an evolutionary imperative. Tell me more about that aspect. I, yeah, I mean, I remember to this day, actually, um, one of the very first plants that Pam talked about was dandelion. And this this is going back some years now and she's dandelion is stepping forward as one of the plants that will help us transition that is uh, not far away from us and you know that was probably seven eight maybe nine years ago now but um i i couldn't concur more you know i've subsequently done a lot of work with dandelion over the years dieted with it it's one of my core elemental uh, plant allies that i work with and i really do believe in this moment that along with a few other plants like wormwood um, that dandelion perhaps offers many people the key to break free of the labyrinth or the matrix. It's because it's a plant that's really about divine timing, about trust, about surrender and about synchronicities and what can happen when you really let go and trust your intuition and you're working with dandelion. Dandelion will keep showing up for you and it'll keep showing you the synchronicities and how much in the flow you are if you allow yourself to be. And at a time when I really feel that we are moving to be coming different types of humans, sovereign humans um, who have absolute trust in themselves, in their higher selves and in the universe and in creative spirit, uh, great spirit. You know, I, I can't think of a plant that's more appropriate because of its sense of divine timing, but also because he's a master geneticist. And I've talked about this on other interviews I've done, but it's worth reiterating that, that dandelion adapts to DNA to be able to thrive in almost any environment. And I, I kind of think that that's a place that humans perhaps are need, needing to move to right now is to have that level of adaptability and to adapt ourselves. Um, now, there are many different ways that our genes can be on and not necessarily needing to go into that on this particular call, but I think that we have a choice where we can work with plants like dandelion or maybe ayahuasca which do change our DNA on some level, but at an organic mother. Level. 
I really feel that we have a choice as to how we choose that our DNA gets adapted. We can allow an external source to do it um, that maybe is more um, of an AI technology basis, or it can be done through the use of pharmaceutical drugs, maybe, or gene therapy, prevalent at the moment. Or we can engage in a co-creative process that is very much um, a co-creative process with plants and you know that can switch us up into being a much more organic being and I think this is where the astrology is really interesting you know um, with Uranus in Taurus and now the North Node in Taurus that speaks to me very much of a return to earth technology and how humans as part of the natural cycle because we are part of nature and I think that that's something that we've forgotten actually in the last 10 20 years or have been pulled or disconnected from is that we are part of nature in our three-dimensional form that we've chosen to be here as we are part of the natural cycle and the natural cycle when you work with the medicine wheel like i do is death and rebirth you know we have winter and spring and nature needs to kill off certain uh, aspects so that new growth can come through that new evolution can come through and, you know, when you really sink into the cycle of the medicine wheel of the seasons with Mother Earth, the profundity of teachings that come through is endless. And we can really start to see ourselves as part of the natural cycle. And when, once that starts to happen, I think that the compulsion to be a more conscious, responsible part of the natural cycle starts to take hold. And, and certainly from my own perspective, that's been very true. So if somebody um, watching this wanted to... Um avail themselves the benefits of dandelion how would mm -hmm. they do that safely well um you know the good thing about dandelion like a lot of the major um healing plants we have like nettle is another one for example pretty much goes everywhere particularly in the northern hemisphere um but there's a lot of nettle and dandelion in britain that much i do know um so we can go out now i mean we're coming into the end of march early april so the weather is a bit strange but generally dandelion will be up now probably starting to come into flower um the best part of the plant often is the root but the, the best time to get that is is in the winter time so we have to follow the energy uh, of the seasons with the plants and so you know you don't take the, the roots during summer because all of the energy is in the leaves and the flowers so this is a time to collect the flowers we can make uh, a dandelion tea with that we can also collect the leaves uh, we can we can um, put dandelion flowers in our food but i would suggest probably the easiest thing is to make a tincture um, or to make a flower essence or if you don't know how to make those then um, you can always get in touch with me or you can you can google them making tinctures and essences is quite easy I, I really believe uh, even though I make and sell those products myself that I would prefer that people learn how to do it themselves and empower themselves with a medicine cabinet that is in their back garden or you know in the local park obviously when we're collecting plants um, it's a good idea not to pick them from an area close to a busy, dusty, polluted road, or, or maybe where somewhere where the local dogs like to go to the toilet, you know, uh, from that, that part of the hedgerow is perhaps not the best idea. So, you know, this is when we really sink into the place of mindfulness because plants, when we want to collect them and make medicine from them, they ask us to start observing all of these things. You know, which is the best spot to pick the dandelion from? Should I take it from here or should I take it from over there? So we're already starting a level of communication with the plant and, once you start doing that and you do it consciously, then it kind of expands and grows. And, you know, uh, if you make a flower essence, um, which I, again, would recommend is a great way to connect to the intelligence of the plants because it's a vibrational medicine. Mm. But if we're talking about tinctures, then, yeah, you know, that's that's really with the 
chemical constituents of the plant leached into the alcohol, which we then take as drops, you know, either straight or with water. So, you know, there's many, many different ways that we can get dandelion into us, but we have other plants like nettle and uh, ramsons, which is wild garlic in Britain, and uh, cleavers or sticky willy, as it's called. These are our spring cleansing plants, and we have them coming up to now so that we can cleanse out all of the sludge from the winter, you know, which is really important because, you know, our bodies kind of go a little bit dormant during the winter. It's cold, you know, in Britain. We need to keep our energy. And one of the things I always love about spring is that sense of the energy returning from the soil up into the snowdrops, into the crocuses, into the bluebells, into the primroses. And it's like every year when that happens, I feel the energy return to me. And, you know, I spend most of winter thinking about the plants I'm going to collect and grow in the spring. And for the first few weeks, it's all good. And then suddenly everything goes bananas and it's overwhelming. <laughs> it's just like so many plants growing and needing collecting all in the same period. Um, to, yeah. to be a plant medicine grower is, is a lot of hard work. Um, but it's also, you know, spending time with the plants is super important because I really feel that observing them in the natural settings brings us into the present moment, really brings us into a place of sort of no mind, only with the connection to the plants. And it's not a good idea to go out collecting plants, thinking about the row we had with our friend or our partner or that email that kind of has unsettled us. We want to be in a nice, clear space. So I often go out plant collecting first thing in the morning and before the sun is up too high and just be in that really nice, clean, clear place. And so that you make a nice, clear medicine. Mm. Wow. Well, let's move on to number seven, which is the Underworld Initiation, A Journey Towards Psychic Transformation by R.J. Stewart. That too was published in the 90s, 1998. Must have been a good decade for all of these, all this knowledge to burst forth. Well, interesting you say that, Sandy, because I think that the 90s was uh, a real transition period. And now when I look back, particularly growing up in the 90s and... Um, a lot of our generation were perhaps what we'd be called the rave generation. We spent a lot of time out on the dance floor uh, with mind ex expanding substances that made us all love each other and hug each other. And, mm. you know, a big theme of the early housing was, was unity on the dance floor and that we were one, one family. It didn't matter what color or creed we were, we were one family. And I think it's really interesting that that energy almost feels like a little bit of a loop from the sixties. And now when I look around me, I see many people from that generation who've become um, healers, plant medicine workers. And I think that when, when we grew up at that time in the early 90s, there was a time of great change. And there was, you know, we didn't know what was about to happen with the millennium. When I look back now, the, the decade after the millennium, we can see the rise of the internet and really, you know, uh, all of the things that we were told about the zeros and ones, I think it was, and the uh, algorithmic breakdown that was going to happen all over the world. And of course, none of it ever happened. And, you know, I think when we look back now, we can also see some of the, um, how to say, the ways that the media presented ideas to us that we kind of got very freaked out about, which, of course, were never going to happen. So I think it's interesting that so many books came out during the 90s, too, that really started to open up the consciousness again uh, through, you know, Fingerprints of the Gods or, um, you know, R.J. Stewart's book. And, and R.J.'s written many, many books. Um, I can recommend most of them. But the other Underworld Initiation particularly resonated because, as I write in the notes, I read the end of that book when I was in the Amazon doing my shamanic training with my Amazonian teacher, my Kichwa teacher, um, who was working with uh, ayahuasca, tobacco and wayusa. And I tracked back 
because uh, the book talks about a seven-year initiation process called the underworld initiation, which in the ancient world, uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks and many other civilizations would put initiates through. And I remember reading that book and I was reading the final chapters and that sort of information dropped in right at the end. And I sat there and it was, it was around um, the spring equinox again. And I actually counted back seven years exactly to the, uh, the spring equinox in, in Egypt and realized that many of the characters and many of the situations that the book talks about I'd actually encountered, not in the traditional format because it wasn't, I wasn't in a mystery school, but much of the initiation I'd actually already undergone at various points. And in that moment in the Amazon, another cycle was finishing and that book kind of summed it up to me. It's, it's quite an academic um, book in many ways. Um, it's not necessarily the easiest to read because there's a lot of esoteric ideas. Uh, RJ has written many, many wonderful books about the other world, the Fairlines, the Elves, uh, all of which I would definitely read. Uh, he's written many books about Merlin too. And there are other authors. Um, Kathleen Matthews has written many books uh, along with her husband, John, around um, these kinds of ideas. Paul Devereux is another one. And so we have many elders from that generation, probably from the sort of 70s. John Michel uh, would be another one who wrote a lot of interesting books around geomancy, connection to the other world, the use of plant medicine, um, how to work with lucid dreaming, really how to open up our minds and start accessing the realms beyond the 3D. And I find it interesting that so many books did come out in the 90s, like in the 60s and 70s, when we had these very mind-expanding movements, um, which altered many of us, and I think altered us in many ways for the better. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great book. I think it's very difficult to get now. I think it's out of print. I was lucky enough to pick up a copy in Glastonbury, I think, many years ago. Um, but yeah, for those people interested in the other world and very, very esoteric ideas, um, RJ is definitely somebody to read. Book number eight, fascinating. Um, Beyond the North Wind, The Fall and Rise of the Mystic North by Christopher McIntosh. That's a fairly recent book, but um, the, I mean, the whole idea that there's something mystic about the North is very intriguing. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would really, really recommend uh, that book for everyone to read who have any interest in um, a number of ideas, you know, because what the book nicely does is is kind of gives an overview of Norse and to how that's kind of tailed forth in the era. There's a whole interesting chapter around how, uh, and this is relevant to now, of course, in many ways, around how the Nazis adopted uh, much of the Aryan ideas and and uh, a lot of that comes from uh, Viking mythology. Um, we're at a time when one of the major world powers that's in the news right now, which of course is Russia, is really a country that's made up with a history of Mongol warriors and Viking warriors. That's the history of, of Russia in many ways. And so the book brings in all of these threads and really um, starts to ask the idea of who were the white wizards of the north who were the Vera Catchers and Quetzalcoatls that are often written about as the wizards that then re-emerge uh, after the Great Flood. And so for me, it started to join up many dots that Odin is actually synonymous with many other beings. Uh, Odin is a world builder. And when you read um, the history or the mythology of the Norse tales, and particularly Ragnarok, which I recommend everybody to read right now, Ragnarok is really an account of a pole shift. 
and what happens in the run-up to it. But it's told through essentially mythological uh, beings. But um, for any of your audience out there who, who work with Odin, you'll know that Odin is, is very much a real being, <laughs> as indeed are many other um, beings that we encounter from the Mabinogi, the likes of Manan and Maclear, for example, very, very present on the Isle of Man. Anyone who's sensitive to other world energies and wants to go to a part of Britain that's still A, very Viking, but B, it's probably the only place in Britain I've been where I could feel the presence of an overarching God or deity everywhere I went on the islands, like he was watching me. And he's completely recognised by all of the locals. Mananin is everywhere. And so I find it interesting that Mananin and Odin are very, very similar characters in many ways. And once we start to go into the Celtic and Norse mythology, we can start to see many... Uh, aspects of what I would consider to be equal Anunnaki beings, the the creator gods, um, you know, and so human history is super complicated, Sandy, and you know um, the seeding of the planet has gone on across many hundreds of thousands of years, and we can see that in the color differences of, of humans, different seed groups with different physical attributes, different mental attributes, different psychic attributes, and I find it interesting that the white Caucasians come from the mystic north. Um, you know, and it, it, this is by no way in any way meant to be a reflection of anything to do with skin color. But but there is an interesting aspect of history that talks about uh, when these beings arrived. And, you know, when you look at the ancient um, texts, we often have accounts of albino beings. And this is, again, looping back to Andrew Collins' book. And so there's a whole jigsaw puzzle that you can pull together that looks at the origins of particularly the white wizards of the north who the Vikings very much celebrated. Odin was one of those beings. And if you read into the accounts of the nine worlds of Yggdrasil and you do shamanic work and you journey to those realms, as I have done many times, you encounter those beings and you start to have a very, very different perception of A, human history, and B, you start to really have an idea of how the other world, um, as so-called, is really a previous version of Earth that was very yin, very feminine, very hive mind probably um, populated by el elven beings, who I believe probably are the Palladians. And so, you know, our mythological accounts of some beings, I think actually refer to perhaps just off-planet beings that came here at various points, gave humans certain intelligence, certain technologies, certain DNA strands. And so I've come to the conclusion really that humans in the modern form are a bit of a mishmash of DNA that our higher selves, our eternal beings have decided to take on board for evolutionary steps. And, you know, um, so it's a big piece, big question, you know, it's a, but that book is really, really interesting, particularly for anyone who's got an interest in the Norse traditions. You said that you, um, you read it while you were touring Iceland and that that was a really profound journey for you, going to Iceland. It, it, it was. And, and um, I kind of got the book deliberately because I was going to Iceland and I wanted to feel into the energy. I was blessed enough when I arrived in Iceland to find my favourite fungi, growing everywhere uh, and so decided to um, dive deep with that medicine and what I experienced I guess is probably what a lot of Icelanders see all the time uh, I saw many trolls rock beings uh, stone beings of varying descriptions but I also encountered very very high angelic frequencies uh, also very strong mermaid energy off the coast in, in several places and so really what I started to understand was that Iceland for me, felt like energetic home. Uh, I felt very connected to my angelic brethren there. But I think it's got something to do with the fire and ice and the volcanic activity. It's constantly creating new forms, new life. And so it has that energy. And 
yeah i mean iceland is is i mean it's obviously going through something right now because there's a lot of volcanoes that seemingly on the verge of erupting there but uh, at the point we went which was i think september 2019 um the country had just sort of most of the tourists had left we had a beautiful um kind of motorhome that we drove around and so we camped in lots of different places and for sheer raw spectacular scenery iceland is hard to beat but what i found really interesting was because i was with the medicine so much there is that what looks like a raw kind of volcanic rock actually energetically speaking looks completely different completely different and this is an experience i've had in many places when i'm with uh some of the, the plant medicines or fungi is that when we tune into the etheric structures of landscapes particularly those that have connections to the ancestors we start to see very very different structures from what we see in in the 3d modern world and you know that's often where we can cross over the veil into those other worlds um frequencies or higher dimensional frequencies and we can encounter uh, stone beings trolls or angels you know cool so book number <laughs> nine eden anton parks so this is probably one of the most recent books I've read. I think there's one more on the list, but um, for anyone who's interested in Sumeria, uh, the origins of humankind, the Adam and Eve story, um, Genesis, uh, how Enki and then Lil, uh, the two Anunnaki brothers, who I believe actually are Archangel Mikael and possibly Lucifer in their ascended forms. Um, he really draws together some interesting anecdotes uh, and re-kind of examines the cuneiform scripts that Sitchin mostly had already kind of translated. Although there's a lot of evidence at the moment saying that maybe Sitchin was not unbiased in his opinions. He may have had influence from somewhere. Um, but Anton goes back into the ancient Sumerian scriptures and shows two very distinct, uh, different uh, timeframes that are being spoken about. One is the sort of uh, what would have been the concurrent time frame when um, some of the um, cuneiform scriptures were, were carved in the clay tablets, which would have been sort of maybe three, four thousand BC. And so he, he can see a lot of what are being talked about is, is concurrent news at that point. But then what he also sees is that the major political upheavals at that point are then also reflected in much, much older tales that really the tales of Adam and Eve and how humans uh, really, I guess, have evolved into the space we're in now and how we even have division. Uh, racial division really, really stems back to um, these ancient times when it seems as if potentially off-planet beings changed our DNA or off other beings from the universe, a nuclear vessel with which to experience the human um, experiment. So yeah, anyone who's interested in that aspect of human history or Anunnaki or angelic beings, for me that, that book really was super, super interesting and resonated on many, many levels. And um, yeah, I also just want to say around that, I, re I recommend um, watching videos by Dan Winter, the physicist. It was him that recommended that book. And also a guy called Harold Kautzvela, very, very interesting uh, guy from Germany who talks a lot about um, origins of humankind in relation to off-planet substances. Um, maybe some of your viewers might have heard of the black goo from which graphene supposedly is made. And the importance of the black goo of Mother Earth and other planets is super, super important. Too big to talk about here. But for those... Okay, spell um, his name. Uh, Harold Kautzvela. It's, I think, Harold, H-A-R-A-L-D, Kautz, K-A-U-T-Z, Vela, V-E-L-A. Um, 
it's not going to be to everybody's taste for sure. Um, but if you've got a mind that is very much interested in these kinds of topics like mine, you know, and, and you've done lots of research, there's lots of points there where um, dots will start to join. And I think not only for the past, but also the present moment as we are traversing through what is a very interesting period in human history, um, we can start to see how this has all come to pass by looking at the history and understanding that the present moment is often just a loop or an echo of the past. Mm-hmm. So the last book, number 10, The Lost Art mm. of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers and the Quest for the Other World by Freddie Silver. I think that this book is essential reading for everybody right now because the lost art of resurrection is something that our ancestors, as Freddie nicely brings together in his book, were doing en masse. All of the ancient philosophers, all of the ancient pharaohs, all of the ancient kings, they would do their three days of darkness in their sealed tombs, often with plant medicine. And really, essentially, what Freddie gets out in the book, which I can completely agree with, um, is that through the use of medicines, possibly even similar to ayahuasca or mushrooms or any of these uh, medicines that can lift us out of our physical body, uh, was the experience of death. I think that our ancestors went through conscious death processes where they were taken out of their bodies and they were initiated into what it's like to be a fifth dimensional being. Because all of the accounts that Freddie alludes to in his book they all say that whenever anyone did those initiations, they came back different and they had a completely different perspective and that they would often be without fear. And from my own experiences, having done many similar shamanic journeys, when we're in fifth dimensional consciousness, we know we have nothing to fear. And, you know, um, we don't have the mystery schools of the past to really do this in an organized form. Some of us, I feel probably many people over the planet have gone through a much more kind of ad hoc version of what mystery schools would have given to initiates several thousand years ago, but we don't have those institutions anymore. Um, you know, we've become very left brain orientated and scientifically driven. And so the book really brings together all of the evidence that shows that many of our ancestors, the pharaohs, the kings, the philosophers of their time, the Aristotles, etc., they all went through this process. And that's largely where we have a lot of the spiritual material from and why we have so many hermetic mystery schools and so on and all of these kinds of ideas you know they were really out of this practice so great book highly recommended okay so there were many other books in the running uh freddie silver daniel redfield sitchin Paolo Coelho, brian bates carlos castaneda andy letcher if i gave you one of them mm. as a bonus which one would you pick Oh, man. Um, all of them. Um, I don't know. Uh, not allowed. Not allowed. Okay. So, um, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a shout out to Andy Letcher's book, Shroom. Um, first of all, Andy's a great guy. Spoke at Plant Consciousness some years back. Um, you can still see the, the talk on Wisdom Hub, actually. And he did what I think is a very nice piece on the history of the sacred mushroom in Western culture. And at first, when you read the book, because he kind of really explodes a lot of the myths around the whole idea of the Amanita Muscaria and the connections to Coca-Cola and Christmas and Father Christmas and the reindeer. Da, 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 da. And he really goes in and he breaks down a lot of these urban legends we have around the various fungi, particularly the Liberty Cat and the um, Amanita or fly agaric mushroom. And he does a dem- demolition job and says, really, there is no evidence to say that we knew about it, particularly Liberty Cat Mushroom, before the 60s. There is no evidence to say that, despite what many of us believe, uh, Andy himself, that the Druids, our ancient Druids, worked a lot with these medicines. There is literally no real evidence to support that. 
so as a, as a piece of um, investigative journalism, at the time I read it, it kind of jarred a little bit at first. And then I sat back and really felt into it. And then I spoke to Andy and said, hey, you know, like this has been my experience. I have evidence either to support the fact that the Druids use mushrooms. But for the first like five or six years that I was doing mushroom journeys, the mushroom appeared to me as a Druid. <laughs> so I'm like, who was teaching who exactly? You know, was the mushroom teaching the Druid? The Dru I don't know, man. So I kind of think, that it's a really interesting book if you're interested in the history of psychedelia or uh, plants that are termed psychedelic. Um, that Andy's book called Shroom is, is a great read. And Andy is a druid and, and he's a great guy and but very much connected to Mother Earth. So, um, yeah, good show. I like that book. Okay, good. I'll allow you that one then, as it's Thank you. you. Um, we don't have much time left, but tell me, um, tell me about Wisdom Hub TV. Oh, bless you. So Wisdom Hub TV was set up around seven, seven, eight years ago, I think, with um, there was four of us. Uh, and we set it up really um, at the behest of my good friend, Kirsty Lewis, um, who actually is coming out to stay with soon here in Mexico. But um, really with the idea to start gathering together, first of all, it was going to be talks from our events, but it quickly evolved into we wanted to create a channel for ideas about reconnection to mother earth about even seven years ago what we were thinking was going to be new earth as it's being talked about a lot now and to show how by being connected to the plants being connected to mother earth being connected to indigenous ideas indigenous wisdom could really show us the way to move into the future and i still really believe that by looking to the past looking to wisdom that's been lost or has been subjugated or forgotten we can find a foundation from which to build the future. And so Wisdom Hub is really set up with that idea. Um, there's lots of interviews on there. It's subsequently diversified a little bit. We've now got uh, astrology and stuff on there too. But it's really about how to see everything is interconnected. The Web of Weird, which is the name of the podcast that we run on there sometimes. But also the interconnectedness of everything that is natural and in the natural space. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of great talks in there. Many of my own teachers have given workshops. There's lots of interesting interviews. And that continues to develop. And, you know, I'm also always interested to speak to new people who feel like they might have something to contribute. It's meant to be a community driven channel, um, you know, something something different from the usual like YouTubes and bit shoots and so on. But something yeah. that um, can really just bring together all of this kind of wonderful nature based wisdom. You know, so and you have workshops, teachings, films, podcasts, and uh, you frequently have Pam on, don't you, Pam Gregory, who um, yes. is enjoying uh, a real explosion of fame at the moment, and very rightly so. Uh, one of the best astrologers I've encountered in a long time. Um, very thorough. I have to say a huge thank you to Pam for, for her time over the last uh, year or so. Doing those interviews, I've learned a lot uh, about many things. Um, but, yes, yeah, a very, very beautiful uh, being, really sharing lots of important information. I know you did an interview with her too recently, um, which you got uh, to talk about, I think, her books. And, you know, um, for those of your viewers who don't know Pam Gregory's work as an astrologer, I think the astrology right now is pretty essential uh, information to navigate what is going on already and what is likely to happen and once we know the mundane astrology and then we have an idea about our own for me the astrology is what's got me through the last two years really helped me navigate yeah. and yeah. i have to say pam and there are a few other uh, astrologers out there who are good also but yes um uh, i like i said in my last interview with pam i think she's possibly now uh, one of the most famous ladies in the whole of britain uh, certainly one of the most important in my opinion 
if if not the world. Um, I mean, she's beloved worldwide. You know, uh, it's so interesting because when I started studying astrology back in the 70s, that was, you know, the time when people were laughing at it. It was, you know, a little column in a newspaper and it was just a piece of fun, most people thought. Now, I would say that astrology is probably, you know, the truest, most real um you know place for information rather than the media you know forget I the media would, you're not yeah. going to get the truth there look at the astrology i would completely concur with what you just said there sandy and for me the astrology is the news it doesn't give us a prediction of what's going to happen as pam often says as with many astrologers but it gives us the container for the flow of energies that are going to hit the planet how they manifest is is how the story is drawn by humans um yeah. you know and I think that once we get a handle on how the astrology works, how it's being worked, and how it's, then we start to understand how the game is played. And once we understand how the game is played, we can start to play the game on our own terms. And we can start working with the astrology and we can create the world in our own image, whatever that might be. And hopefully that's a much more heart centered image than the one that we've perhaps had for the last couple of thousand years. Um, so, yeah, astrology for me is the news. And I think that that's partly why. You know, the fusion of plant medicine and astrology is super interesting for lots of reasons. And it seems to resonate with people. So I'm happy um, that the two modalities seem to be uh, compatible, so to speak. Indeed. Well, David Farrell, thank you for adding your 10 best spiritual books to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations. It's been a pleasure to thank you so much for having me on and letting me talk about some books that have really uh, had a huge effect on me. And uh, I hope that some of your audience might get out there and read them uh, and maybe feel inspired or, um, you know, in the same ways that I've been by those books. And yeah, there's lots of great books. And, you know, let's let's please keep books on the bookshelf. You know, it's important and sure they're made out of paper, but... I think that that's a much better um, resource than taking minerals and uh, crystals out of the ground to build technology. So enjoy your books, folks. Um, You know, they're precious and treat them well. Thank you, David. And you can learn more about David, his books, his um, the books that he's enjoyed and talked about today you can find um, a write-up about every single one on the no bs spiritual book club website but you can also find all kinds of things on david's website at wisdomhub.tv so do check it out some very interesting stuff there so um as we close a little bit to say about um the no bs spiritual book club we all know that the spiritual book market is becoming increasingly crowded and it's becoming ever more challenging to sort the wheat from the chaff which is why we launched the club so that we can provide you with trusted recommendations from people like gavid authors teachers speakers others who have walked this path before you so check out our free 10 best spiritual books archive at the no bs spiritual book club.com where you can also view previous episodes of this interview series and you can add your name to our save my space list to get last minute reminders of upcoming episodes that brings us to the end of this week's show i'm sandy sedgbeer and i'll be back at the same time next week with another 10 best spiritual books interview till then it's goodbye from me <laughs>